Our text this morning is Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're looking at verses 7 through 13. On page 841 in your pew Bible, I encourage you to look at that. Uh, Look at it in your own Bible, on your own device, however you've got the word before you. Uh, But we'll spend time together as we prepare for the table. There's an old German field marshal back in the 1800s. This is off-quoted, and several people have claimed credit for this. But his quote about plans, about strategy, about teaching, about anticipation of, of actually getting the job done, his old field marshal said, there is no plan that survives first contact with the enemy. There, there, once we can sit there, we can plan and we can talk about it. We can draw it out on a board. But then when we actually set foot to doing it, it becomes a different matter. That's why on-the-job training is so very profitable in, in all sorts of professions. We think about uh, doctors and nurses who must do internships and residency. I don't want a, a doctor to, uh, to treat me whose only experience with uh, the internals of the human body is looking at colorful pictures in a biology textbook. I don't, I don't want him to, to say, well, you know, I, I, I'm not a doctor, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> I don't want him to say I had a great professor and he talked a really good game. This is a story about even more than on-the-job training. It is the idea of seeing ministry maturity, ministry growth, sanctification, all coming about in the midst of ministry. We've, we've seen the, uh, the disciples who have been with Jesus for a time now, and now Jesus is going to send them out. They'll come back, but he's sending them out for a bit. And one important concept I want you to take right off the bat, and as we look at the text, it is, as we grow, we will go. And in our going, there is great growing. It rhymes, it must be true, right? But I think we'll see it to be true in the text. There would come a day when Jesus would not be with the disciples. We know that day is coming. We have the, the wonderful benefit of history to look back on that. They needed to be ready. Jesus was building his church, and these ordinary men would be the means by which Jesus would build his church. Now, much about these, these young men was immature. Much about these young men was so horribly imperfect and, and not ready. Uh, they were untried. They had a limited grasp even of who Jesus was. But here's a, a concept to kind of be the, the meta story across the top of this, is, is that we don't have to go forward with a perfect understanding. A poor understanding an imperfect uh, equipping, an incomplete uh, preparation is where we're always going to be. If we simply wait until we are ready and perfect, we will never go. The spread of the gospel doesn't depend on the perfection of preachers. It doesn't depend on the merit of members. It depends on the strength of the gospel. Think of how God used that grumbling prophet Jonah in the Old Testament a man who actually did not like the people he was sharing the gospel with, and it was tantamount to him going from door to door and saying, today, hey, you, uh, you, you don't want to be a Christian, do you? He, he was very discouraged by the results of the gospel. And if God can use that, how well can he use us, even though we're not perfect? Let's look at the text. The end of verse 6, remember what took place last week, the healing of the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years, the raising of Jairus' daughter, uh, the 12-year-old girl uh, from the dead. And it says then that Jesus went out among the villages teaching. And he called the 12 
And he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, you stay there until you depart from there. And if any place does not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet off as a testimony against them. And so they went out. And they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons, and they anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. Pray with me. Lord, bless not only our reading, but our discussion of your word. And as we reflect upon it at the table, Father, and in our going forth, may we, Lord, be blessed and strengthened by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a a pretty major shift in in how we've seen ministry going on uh, in in the company of Jesus. Uh, to this point, uh, this, this group of 12 had been with Jesus for 18 to 20 months uh, at this point. They've been constantly walking with the Master, learning as they watched, asking questions, and He would gather them to the side and talk about uh, what's going on, teaching them with parables. They would hear the parables and the public teaching. They'd come along after and say, Jesus, what does this mean? This was a a wonderful example of what Deuteronomy talks about in as you go, as we walk along the way and are rising up and as are lying down, uh, these men learned from Jesus as they walked with him, as they rose up in the morning and in the evening. But here what we see is a short-term sending. We see Jesus sending them out for this bit of training, but also this wonderful bit of ministry. He gives them a message to preach, and he gives them the power to validate that message. And it talks about sending out these 12. Now, the parallel accounts also speak about the sending out of the 70. That's no discrepancy. Mark is focusing on these 12. The other gospel accounts bring in said that this was a pattern of ministry in Jesus' ministry in his three years among us. It's all part of the same mission. And what Jesus does is he sends his disciples out to do the work that the Father had given him to do. And so what takes place here? A concept I want you to see in the midst of this, and as I bring out these points in this message, I want you to think about that in terms of the application in your life personally, in your ministry as God has called you, and us as a church. How that we might put these things into practice, that Jesus says the things that you've seen me do among you, do them also. Teaching these things, modeling these things, living these things out. First, we do see ministry multiplication. We see incredible ministry multiplication. He called the twelve and he began to send them out. It was not all about Jesus. and The message was all about Jesus, but the means by which it was accomplished was not only Jesus. For we can understand the perfect one with the perfect message in the perfect way, seeing great success, but we're going to see amazing success by these imperfect men, these men who are going to be arguing about who has the, uh, the right to the best seat in the kingdom. You think about James and John, they even go get their mama to say, would you go ask Jesus if we could have the good seats in the kingdom? (laughs) These are men that were still coming to grips with what was going on. And so he sent them out. He sent them out. Ministry multiplication is that idea that we see picked up in Ephesians. In Ephesians it says that God has given the different offices in the church, preachers, teachers, elders, deacons, officers, leaders, all of these offices he's given, all of these positions he's given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's to equip you. Who is the most powerful missionary in, in this church? It's, it's any one of you as the Holy Spirit is working in you. 
I've said it often and I will say it uh, until the Lord divinely changes my mind or I see him face to face. And that is that as I go out there and, and, and tell people about Jesus, tell people about ministry, tell people about the kingdom of God, there is, there is regularly a suspicion among many that says, well, he's just drumming up business. He's, he's just interested in, in having a full church. He's just interested in, some folks would, would turn around and say, well, he's just interested in making sure there's plenty of folks there to give, pay his salary. I do long to see the church full. I long to see more and more people know and love and proclaim Jesus. But here's what happens when you go forth and you say, let me tell you about how my life has been changed by an encounter with the true and the living God. Let me talk to you about ministry as I see it being done uh, by simple people, ordinary people, plain people, imperfect people. People who struggle, people who sin, and I see it happening, and I've been blessed by it, and I think you will be too. That bears such an incredible mark of sincerity and honesty. And as these disciples go out, they go out preaching what Jesus had taught them. Josephus, who is a history uh, historian who wrote in this time, he speaks about that there were 204, he was very specific about this, 204 towns and villages in Galilee in, in the day of Jesus. 204, and Jesus is sending them out to these towns. They would go from town to town. If they were to hit them all, it probably would take six to nine months in order to accomplish that. We don't know uh, that they were all uh, indeed hit, but he sent them out to minister among them. And what kind of results do we see by this ministry multiplication? Well, if you scroll down uh, in Mark chapter 6, one of the very next events we read about is the feeding of the 5,000. The 5,000 then come as a result of of this ministry, this multiplication, this going out. 5,000 come. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that at Pentecost and and in the early church, there's preaching and and 3,000 daily were added, in some cases, to the number of those who profess Jesus. This is the kind of God we serve. This is, this is the power of the gospel message. It wasn't that Jesus himself had to speak those words, but he entrusted, he empowered his disciples to go and do this. And you think about the 5,000 that gathered that were fed. And remember this, ladies, I don't agree with this method of, of, of taking census, but the 5,000 there really did mean 5,000 men. 5,000 men were there. Could have been 10, 12, 15,000 that had gathered there, women, children, they weren't counted, but they were there. And don't you know that Jesus was delighted that they heard? That's what happens with ministry multiplication. These disciples, they went out. And, and how did he send them out? Here we see not only ministry multiplication, but ministry partnership. It says he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two. I have to always think about, it's kind of the opposite of the ark, isn't it? bringing in the animals two by two, and now he's sending them out two by two. An interesting picture there, but but I do think uh, a different thing is accomplished. Certainly in the ark we see two by two, that ensures that the species survive. But in this case, what it ensures is, is several things. We see mutual support. We see protection and confirmation of the message. We see the blending of different gifts as they went out and preached the gospel. He sent them out in pairs. There were no lone rangers. We see this pattern continuing in the book of Acts. Uh, We see uh, pairs and and folks coming alongside each other. We need each other. We we, we need to have those who are going to hold us accountable. You think about the kind of things that would be established that two would go out there 
As you go and you preach in a difficult situation, you go and you talk about things in a different difficult situation, you might be speaking a very unpopular message. Jesus addresses that in a minute. Well, having somebody alongside is going to embolden you, but it's also going to hold you accountable. It's that idea that as you proclaim that you know somebody standing alongside you is going to going to help you to be to bold, not be bold, not to not to soft sell. If you get tongue tied, if you get an abusive response, these things are easier in pairs. If if you're invited in, it's always better that you go in two at a time. You don't want gossip. You don't want slander. And there's a there's another reason too, I believe. Uh, another reason too. Uh, is, are sent out is that if we look back in Deuteronomy chapter 27, you don't have to turn there, Deuteronomy 27, 6, it talks about there's a, a wonderful precedent of the confirmation of two or more witnesses. It's the idea that I'm not the only one saying this. There's somebody else alongside me. I'm, I'm not struggling like Elijah saying, am I alone right that I have a brother who's standing there beside me? We ought to, to draw upon each other. Uh, ought to be encouraged by each other. Uh, we ought to have each other's back. We ought to, in the, uh, the Air Force, we talk about having wingmen. In the Army, they talk about battle buddies. Is that somebody that's going to be there with you and to go forth in ministry? We see ministry multiplication taught in this. We see ministry partnership taught in this. And we see ministry power taught in this message. Uh, look, in verse 7, it says, He called the twelve, he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And if we skip down to verse 13, it says, and then they cast out many demons. The, uh, the word there is exousia. Uh, it literally means two things. Is first off, they had authority. That is, they had the right to do what they were doing. Jesus put them in that position to saying, you have been put in a position where you are in authority over these things. The things of this world do not rule you. He gave them that authority, but also we see that exousia includes power, the ability to do it. The authority to do what they're doing and the power to do what they're doing. Who has bestowed this? The Lord of creation, by whom all things were made, we testify in the Nicene. This is Jesus. Now we need to understand that this is an apostolic authority was given in terms of the casting out of demons and the healing, but we need to know that we have been given no less power, different power, but no less power by God in our ministry. And what's particularly wonderful about that is the unique nature of the power that we've been given today, and that is the power of the Word of God. We have been given the Word of God. As these disciples went out, they were speaking these things. They had no New Testament. They had no Ephesians. They had no Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were living it. And the power that God gave them, the power that He used, was to demonstrate the truth of what they were proclaiming. The New Testament was not going to really begin to gel, really, for another 30, 40 years. In the meantime, what God did was He confirmed the apostolic preaching by apostolic signs. But today... Today, as we go out, we take the Word of God. And what is the Word? The Word is the power of salvation to those who believe, right? Y'all are getting... Well, at least you are. <laughs> Just a, a word of advice. Don't ever let yourself be outdone by Rex Snyder. Join. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Uh, that, that's exactly right. The, the Word of God is the power of salvation. It's the power of salvation to those who believe. It is a power that has been entrusted to us. And as we go out there, there's another point that comes out about this power. And Jesus speaks about it right here 
In verse 11, he says, If any place will not receive you, and they don't listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. I was, um, I was in my home one day. I had a couple of ladies from one of the uh, local uh, groups uh, come by and uh, want to evangelize me um, and, uh, and, and what I know not to be true. Uh, I had been working in the yard. I looked particularly nasty that day. Uh, I came and was sweaty and torn T-shirt and blue jeans, and I answered the door, and uh, this very sweet lady standing there, a hot July afternoon in Savannah, Georgia. And I invited them in. I said, please step inside, and, and I'll, I'll fix them some ice water, and we can sit and talk. And they looked at me like, oh, my goodness, he's going to chop us up and bury us in the backyard. <laughs> and and I, I assured them that, uh, that my son, Thomas, was, was, was quite young at the time. My son is in here playing. It's fine. We'll sit right here in the parlor. It's very hot out here. I just invite you to come in. And said, and we had a nice talk. Uh, they began to try to persuade me uh, to, to take a book that the book was entitled "What the Bible Really Says." I ask, I know, right? And I and I ask, uh, so I, I can't just read the Bible. I need a book that's going to tell me what it really says. Well, you know, and we began to talk, and they began to explain to me, and and eventually get around to the fact that they were indeed teaching that Jesus was not the Son of God. Jesus was not fully God. And I asked them questions, and they began to perceive that I was Trinitarian, as they said. I said, yes, I am. And they began to tell me about that the Word was a God and not the Word was God, we see in, in John chapter 1. And, and you're beginning to get a, a picture of the conversation as it was going. Um, they uh, tried to explain to me that when Thomas bowed down in worship, asked about Thomas bowing down and worshiping Jesus, and they said, well, you know, those are different Greek words, and when he says, my Lord and my God, and I said, oh, really? He says, kurios, Lord, theos, my God. No, those are the same words. And they thought, wow, the yard man knows Greek. <laughs> All that to say, I encouraged them to come back. I encouraged them to bring the book. I'd love to talk with them about it. I, I didn't want to pick a fight with them. I didn't want to argue with them, but I wanted to, I wanted to love them, and, and I wanted to, to engage them. And, but what I did see is, is they, uh, they stepped out, and I pulled back the curtains just a little bit as they walked past my house. They kicked the dust off and were never... That's, that's not... That's, what Jesus is saying here, when he talks about that, is, is he's giving a word of comfort, a word of encouragement, and a word of reinforcement to his disciples. He's not saying, be quick to condemn people when they speak against you. Be quick to just leave them in your dust, leave them in your wake. That's not at all what he's saying, and far too many people have interpreted it that way. What he is saying is, be prepared for rejection and opposition. Be prepared for it. There will be people who will not listen to what you have to say. They will say, you and your preaching, you are not welcome here. We will not listen to you. You take this oil that you're anointing, you take this exorcism, and you leave. We don't want you here. That happens. So what do you do? I'm going to go home and eat worms. I'm going to cry. I'm going to pout. I'm going to be overwhelmed with guilt. I'm going to break down. I'm going to say to myself, it was all my fault. I didn't preach well. I didn't evangelize well. I stumbled over my words. And Jesus is saying, no, that is not the case. The power is not yours. The power is mine. The power is working through you. But there will be, and this is the unfortunate fact of ministry, is that there will be people who will say no. We'll hear the gospel. And, and what Jesus is saying to them is, you've got a mission. You need to stay on your mission to go. And, and when people just slam the door in your face, pick yourself up, dust yourself off. And the power 
the power is not in your eloquence. The power is not in your perseverance. The power is in God working through you. So we see the multiplication. Uh, we see the ministry partnership, the ministry power, but we also see ministry provision in this. As we go out, we need to know that God will provide for us. He charged them in verse 8, Take nothing with you for your journey except a staff. Take no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, but wear sandals and don't put on two tunics. They were living in dangerous times, and he's telling them to travel light. Go out there and be ready. The Gospel of Mark, and the next very next thing we see is John the Baptist is beheaded. Right there, how somber is that? There's a sense of urgency. He's saying, I don't want you to go and get out and raise support and do all these sort of things right now. Missionaries have to do that in our day. But at this time, what Jesus was teaching is, you need to go right now. And he's teaching something beyond that. Beyond just the dangerous nature of the times. He was, he was teaching these disciples a lesson in dependence. As you go, I will provide. I will provide. Now, we know the wisdom and planning. We know the wisdom and preparation. Uh, and we, I've known so many, so many missionaries and, and pastoral candidates and folks that, that thought, I don't need to plan. I don't need to prepare. Looking at a passage like this, just saying, I'm just going to go. But there's, there's a wisdom in, in planning and preparing. But there are also those seasons where we don't know exactly how it's all going to come. And Jesus was telling his disciples at this moment, you don't know. Luke 22, uh, Jesus reaches back and he refers to this event. Luke 22, 35 and 36. He's talking to his disciples and he said, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack, when I sent you out with no sandals, did you lack for anything? And they said to him, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. He was talking about a transition in ministry yet again. But in this case, he's saying, you need to trust in me. There's one more component in this idea of of ministry provision. Uh, And I I believe it's there. Uh, Ken Hughes in his uh, commentary on Mark uh, speaks about it this way. He talks about the nature of the equipment that they take. And he speaks about when a man entered into the temple courts in that day, he had to put down his staff. He had to take off his shoes and his money girdle. That was how he would carry uh, his resources. That is all the ordinary things were to be left outside. And it may be very well that Jesus was thinking of this when he meant that his men were to see the humble homes that they were entering in to be as sacred as the temple courts. That they were going to go and do the work of the Lord and proclaim the gospel not in the temple, but in the homes. But we do see very clearly, as the Lord commands, he provides. Folks that work for the government, let me put it in your terms. God gives no unfunded mandates. God doesn't send us forth and say, I hope you you find what you need. That he provides as he calls. We also see ministry motive in the midst of this. He talks about, he says, and when you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. That's a difficult passage. What does he mean? Stay there until you leave there. That kind of sounds redundant. No, but what he's saying is you come to a town, stay in this one house. What he was teaching them is this. When you come into the town, uh, don't look around and say, I wonder if there's a nicer house that I can stay in. I wonder if there's somebody that's going to feed me a little bit better. Somebody I can trade up because nobody's going to go from the mansion to the hovel, right? Nobody's going to downgrade. Uh, they're going to look for something nicer. And what he's saying is, I don't want people to think that you are coming through here doing ministry for lucre, for money. When you come to the house, stay there. Don't give people the opportunity to talk about you ministering simply for the good things. This is a serious mission. Let your lifestyle reflect the deepest conviction. When you come into that place, stay there. 
until you're called to the night. We see ministry compassion as well. They cast out many demons. They anointed many with oil who were sick, and he healed them, verse 13. Validation of the kingdom, yes, the casting out of demons. But the world was watching, and they were speaking about love. They were speaking about the kingdom, and people were watching to see, would they really demonstrate the love that they were talking about? We have sick people among us. James warns about that, says don't just say be warm and well-fed and and let's, let's talk about things. We need to look around and see the needs of hurting people. We need to provide for others. We need to make sure they're fed, they're clothed. And the disciples were encouraged that the power that I've given you, the instruction that you take, take it in love and minister in love. And finally, we see, and, and this is where we leave from here to come to the table, we see a ministry proclamation. A ministry proclamation. It says they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. Proclaim, Caruso is the, the word there, that they would, they would preach, they would proclaim, that they would make known, that they would shout. And what was their message? It's interesting, the message that proclaim. And there's truth to these phrases, there's reality to these phrases, but it's interesting to note they're not biblical phrases. We, we go out and say, we well, just need to tell people they need to ask Jesus into their heart. That they, they need to just, uh, just, just simply follow Jesus. But we, we see so often, so clearly in the ministry of Jesus, in the ministry of the apostles, says their message is toward repentance. Repentance. Repentance is an unpopular message. That means that there's something wrong with you. But how foolish would it be for a doctor not to admit a disease in your life as he examines and, and diagnoses it? How, how foolish would it be? How wrong would it be? How evil would it be for him to look and say, oh, you're okay. You're just fine. You just, you just need to... You just need to straighten up. You just need to improve a little bit. Especially, especially if there's a cure. To withhold a cure because you don't want to offend the patient with an acknowledgement of the disease is cowardly and wrong. The disciples were to go and to preach repentance. What is repentance? What is this message that we are to take? Metanoeho. It literally means a new mind. A changing of your mind a message of salvation that we find in the turning away from sin. The question in the children's questions is, is what does repent mean? Don't worry about writing metanoeho, uh, but write about this. Repentance is a U-turn. You know, as Carol and I were coming back from Savannah, um, uh, we, we stopped for gas. I'm not going to say who was driving, <laughs> but I was reading a book. And, and suddenly the Garmin up there on our, our dashboard starts telling us to turn off on a road that we'd never turn off on on the way to come home. And then we realized that we'd gotten off to get gas and we got back on. Neither one of us had noticed that we had turned around and we were heading back to Savannah. <laughs> Interstates are confusing that way. How foolish would it have been to say, I'm not heading the wrong way. I'm going to keep going. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to go faster this way. I'm going to drive better going this way, Right? I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to stay right in my lanes. I'm going to obey the speed laws. Isn't that good enough? If I just do, keep doing what I'm doing, but do it well? No. It, it meant acknowledging the reality of the situation that we need to get off. We needed to turn around. We needed to head the other way. A purpose and resolve after a newness of direction, a newness in purpose, a newness in life. Repentance is an inward response. Genuine repentance. We plead with God to forgive us, to deliver us from the burden of sin that we would be released from a fear of judgment and hell. It's the attitude of that 
that publican in, in the temple as he lifted up his voice, but he could not lift up his eyes. And he said, be merciful to me, to, to be God, the sinner. Repentance is not merely changing your behavior. Repentance begins in the heart. And it works its way out in our lives to say, Lord, teach me to hate my sin and to love you and to make that U-turn. We come to the table this morning and we are called to come in repentance. Repenting of our sins and thankful that in Christ Jesus we are forgiven. And But we are not to keep that a secret, that we are to go forward in ministry together, going forth two by two, three by three, as we go out there to a world, as we, we proclaim Jesus and we proclaim repentance, that Jesus offers forgiveness and it is no vice and it is, it is offensive to those who want to hang on to their lives as being something good, but to recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no good. And we proclaim repentance in the name of our Savior. And we look excitedly for the Lord of the harvest to provide. This morning, I encourage you as we prepare in song, as we prepare in prayer, to come to the table, that you would examine your heart, that you would repent of your sins and live lives in keeping with that new direction, that newness, that restoration that we find in Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Lord, as we sing, as we pray, as we come to the table, would our eyes be focused on you? Lord, would we walk in a way that is worthy? May we go forth in the power of your name, Lord Jesus. Be with us as we prepare for the table. For your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.